Hello and welcome, and thank you for downloading another edition of Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. Here we are again. Here we are again, doing uh, so well. We are, and uh, and having a great time. And thank you very much indeed for all the correspondence. Yes. Uh, and thank you for getting in touch. And I was at the Appledore Book Festival this weekend. Okay. And uh, that was terrific. And the people there loved the podcast and came up and said how much they loved the podcast. Okay, and this was in connection with your book, I'm guessing. Was that the reason why yes, you were at the book festival? Yeah, so uh, I was invited down to the Appledore Book Festival uh, to talk about uh, my book. And in fact, that morning, I'd been to Dartmoor Prison. I saw your video <laughs> so, outside the gate. Because yes. the book is set in Dartmoor Prison yeah. in 1815. So uh, it takes a long time to get in. Um, I mean, legally. Well, I don't mean Obviously. it took me a long time to break in, <laughs> but you have to be invited in. And we were shown around by the staff, and I spoke to prisoners in the library uh, in Dartmoor Prison, some of whom had read the book really whilst incarcerated in Dartmoor Goodness Prison, me. which was a really you know that was yeah, a really amazing yeah. thing. Anyway, um, met lots of people who were downloading the podcast, so clearly the word is getting out. It now. is, and, and thank you to our friends at W H Smith for supporting this podcast as well, because without that kind of support, this podcast doesn't happen. That's right, because the full name is Books of the Year. With WH Smith. In yes. fact, I call in at various WH Smiths and just say hi. Hi. I'm Simon May from Simon May's Books of the Year, and they say get out or buy yes. a book. Uh, do you want a free galaxy? No thanks. <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> My, they're huge, those galaxies. They are they? very bad. I mean, it's very tempting, isn't it? You know, but I always say no because I am strong willed. You can get in touch, Books of the Year at yahoo.com. We would love to hear from you what you think about the show as long as you like it. Obviously, you know, we're not going to read out criticism. What do you think we are? I mean, come on. (laughs) We're not fools, you know. Uh, Josie Moynihan. Uh, Hello to you both. Still enjoying the podcasts. And it's almost as though she's saying, you're still enjoying it. Just about hanging on and finding out about books and authors that I would never normally read, apart from Mark Kermode, of course. That was in the last podcast. Yeah, very good. That was fun uh, with Alan Johnson. So, of course, the great thing about the podcast is they're still all up there. So if you've just joined us, you've got a whole back catalogue to look at. Hearing about the book fairy, I wondered if you'd heard about book crossing. Most of my books are paperbacks from charity stores, so they return there when they've they've been read. I do send some off via book crossing, but not always as wild releases. As far as the authors whose books I have most of, that would be Terry Pratchett and Anne McCaffrey. Sadly, neither are suitable for your podcast due to them both being dead. Yes, they are. Yes, well, we can't get them on. Sorry. Looking forward to the next instalment. So, uh, so book crossing. Uh-huh. Uh Is this is when you release your books into the wild? That's the thing. And uh, how how does that work exactly? You what? You send them off somewhere? I mean, you don't just release them into the wild. Yeah, you do because they're caged really? up and then you leave are, them in the oh, garden. Right. You just open the back door and out they trot. Uh, Anyway, they say they're a community of passionate, generous book lovers, changing the world and touching lives. And I think the idea is you label your book and you share it and you follow it. And anyway, if you go to bookcrossing.com, they don't sponsor us, so I don't see why we should... No, why are we talking about them? W.H. Smith, very angry with us now. Um, (laughs) Yes, because W.H. Smith would say, buy a book. Yeah, buy the book. Not releasing it into the wild. Josie, thank you. Yes, uh, Rachel uh, emails to say, uh, um, I've just listened to your latest musical podcast as well in a hotel room in a very rainy Plymouth and have one criticism. It was far too short. Oh, okay. Yes, both Mark and Alan spoke so eloquently and interestingly. This is Mark Kermit and Alan Johnson. Correct. Uh, The atmosphere in the studio seemed very relaxed, mutually respectful. I could have listened to many more anecdotes and memories of bands past from both Mark and Alan, but I guess I'll have to read their books. Speaking of which, there are so many books and so little time. How do you find the time to read so much? I've always tended to average a book a week and listen to an audio one on and off when I'm walking or on the bus or on the train. 
There are many books I want to read, but only a finite amount of time. Fairly regularly, we turn the TV off and spend the evening reading instead. That provides one good window, but still. The series I absolutely loved was Mallory Towers. These gave me the impression that my next school would include a nasty girl called Gwendolyn, who would ruin my knitting and spill ink on my work. I'm constantly worried about that. Yeah, that does feel a different time. Uh, Of course, there was no such thing, it being the 80s and a mixed secondary comprehensive, rather than a posh girl's only boarding school, rather than Gwendolyn, who would have been picked on anyway for her ridiculous name. Actually, Gwendolyn isn't ridiculous, Rachel, actually. Uh, It was a nasty girl called Tracy, who would spit on your PE kit. Lovely. Nice. Uh, In the noughties, we ended up living in a town where her brother had a butcher's shop. I boycotted shopping there. Very much uh, had the upper hand. Well done, Rachel. Uh, Glad the pods are weekly now. Good move, guys. Have a lovely week. Uh, Rachel, thank you very much indeed. Yes, so... uh, uh, Sometimes we're weekly and sometimes we, we uh, drop a small one. Yes, we do. <laughs> what a lovely little expression <laughs> yeah. that is. Yes. Uh, what I meant was yes. yeah. taste of podcast. Yes. With and the, then a big yeah. episode. Big then episode. We do a big yeah, we one. Do. Then we drop a big one. Yes. <laughs> Goodness me. Oh, okay. I'm very sorry about that. Uh, Paul Watson. Uh, to books of the year at yahoo.com great to hear you guys back together discussing books already it's become one of my favorite podcasts i eagerly await each new episode as a bookseller there's always too many to recommend this year has seen some great titles including simon's oh how did that get through I the process my I imagine top two picks of the year have been the seven deaths of evelyn hardcastle and hmm, are we going to say sis i'm going to say C-I-R-C-E by Madeline Miller. Both are books which leave a lasting imprint on you in future. Might you feature uh, backlist titles or will you keep to new releases? I think we'll probably keep to new releases. Because, to be honest, the authors, when they want to be interviewed, want to be interviewed about their new stuff, don't they? Yeah, that's That's, probably true. And they need to be alive. Yes, they do. We do ask that they are alive. Uh, many thanks for doing the show, and long may it continue. Uh, Brian Gallagher emails booksoftheyear at yahoo.com, says, Hello, folks. Caught up with most of the podcast so far, and it occurs to me that I can't be the first one to think that he should be called Hot Walter Bottle. Hot Walter Bottle. Hot Walter Bottle. Says Brian in Cumberland. Yes, because this is obviously referring to this, uh, what I maintained for weeks was a mythical comic book character based on a uh, boy that turned into a hot water bottle. I think he was, was... he he was always a hot water bottle, he didn't turn into one, he always was. So he was a hot water bottle that turned into a boy? No, he was a a hybrid. He was a hybrid boy boy and bottle. That makes no sense. Uh, Paul Cartwright, uh, Simon and Matt, terrific podcast. Uh, really enjoying it. Shame it's not five days a week and two hours long. Steady. Your help required. Uh, read, a, read a book as a child about road traffic signs where the little stick men on the signs came to life at night and got up to all kinds of adventures. Fairly certain it was a series of books, but have not been able to track it down or recall any more than this. Perhaps you could share it, please. Uh, and then you could get some help. Do you remember that? I don't remember that at all. Do you? No, no, no idea. If no, you know what, if you know what uh, he's talking about, uh, get in touch, please. Uh, on other subjects, first books uh, would have to have been Swallows and Amazons. Still love it and reading it to my eight-year-old daughter. It's a great book. Book everyone should have. Godfather. Uh, still rereading again and again after all these years. Most recent book, Paul Merson, How Not to Be a Footballer. Yeah, he shouldn't have been, Okay, says says Paul in Brighton. Right. Well, let's try and get beyond that. Uh, Claire Hazard has tweeted us to say, um, I'm currently reading The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes, who, of course, was a uh, past guest on the the podcast. An unputdownable political memoir, in particular the details of the secret talks with Cuba leading up to the Obama visit in 2016 are fascinating. Thanks for the recommendation at Books of the Year. You're sounding iller as we we proceed. I am. I'm struggling through. And... 
Uh, Adam Sloman said, in the photograph from your last podcast with Mark Kermode and Alan Johnson, Mark Kermode appears to be dressed as a Ghostbuster. Yes. Complete with proton pack. Anyway, well played, sir. And I look back at the photograph, and he's clearly desperate to get out. He is. He's, uh, yes, opening the door as the photo is being taken. Uh, Chinny Hill uh, remarked that uh, Alan Johnson looked like Jimmy Young. Really? Fair enough. That's not fair, I don't think. To either of them. Uh, Coming up on Books of the Year in future podcasts, coming your way very shortly, Graham Norton, Gary Barlow, Chris Riddell and Cressida Cowell, Dermot O'Leary, Wally Funk, Marcus Zusak, Anthony Horowitz, the QI guys... QI, who, whose book is called Book of the Year. I think that's so why we booked it. We've booked it because they've got the same title as us. Uh, Ian Rankin and Lee Child. Oh, hello. And various others, as they occurred to us. Yeah. Uh, and we would, seriously, we'd love to hear from you. You can uh, get involved. You can tweet us, uh, which is at Books of the Year, and you can email booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Anything else to say before we move uh, on? If anyone guests? stops me in the street with some Lemsip, that would be great. Thanks, because I'm suffering. And on with the show. 
dollars in the end, all that James took. He, his motivation was completely different from Oleg's. He was a, uh, you know, he was a very greedy man who's very disgruntled CIA officer. What happened? I mean, this is to cut to the chase very quickly. Is that the information that Oleg was producing for the West was so good that it was being passed by MI6 to the CIA, and the CIA doesn't like not knowing where things come from, uh, although that is part of tradecraft, that's part of spycraft. But the Brits would never reveal who their spy was. So the CIA began spying on the Brits to try and find out who the Brits had, who their agent was. But what the CIA didn't know was that Aldrich Ames, their head of counterintelligence, was a KGB spy. And so you've got the KGB spying on the CIA, spying on MI6, spying on the KGB. Uh, you, This is the an area that you have written in before and this is kind of your specialist subject and you wrote a book about Kim Philby, uh, A Spy Among Friends. Is that the start of you getting involved in this story or was the Oleg Gordievsky story something that you'd been wanting to get your teeth into for a long time? I've been wanting to write about Oleg for a long, long time. He's sort of, he is the most... I mean, for MI6, he's the kind of lodestar. He's, he is the antidote, if you like, to Philby. Uh, Philby. Kim Philby was an MI6 officer who was secretly working for the KGB... Oleg is the KGB officer who is secretly working for MI6. And, and his story really does dominate the latter part of the Cold War. He, he made a substantial difference. So I've always wanted to write about him. Uh, Philby does, in fact, come into this story because Philby was um, a, a retired... I mean, he fled to exile in Moscow in 1961. Um, but he, by the time Oleg was, was sort of going through the ranks of the KGB, Philby was a sort of, as it were, a professor emeritus of espionage. And he was brought in for various odd jobs. And one of them was to try and assess uh, why a particular Soviet spy had been picked up, a, a, a Norwegian woman who'd been working for the Soviets. The real reason that she'd been picked up was that Oleg had given her name to the West. But Philby was the person who was brought in to try and work it out. And he said to the KGB, you've got a spy in your midst. And Oleg was among a whole group of KGB officers who were summoned uh, to be told, we think there's a mole inside here. And Oleg describes just how terrifying that was, knowing that it was his information that had led Philby to his trail. Just just to set things up uh, a bit more, Ben, explain his family background because his father and his mother and his grandmother are, 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 are big players. I mean, they're background players, but they're important players. Absolutely. I mean, Oleg was a purebred product of the KGB. His father was a KGB officer. His brother was a distinguished KGB officer. He was brought up in a special KGB compound. He even ate, believe it or not, KGB food. I mean, the whole thing was, you know, he was, a, he was part of a very extraordinary elite in Russian society. And he, he, his early life was that of a very conventional, extremely obedient servant of the Soviet state. It, 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 doesn't, it appears that really Oleg never imagined being anything other than a KGB officer. So his conversion to a position where he was doing his best to destroy the KGB is very remarkable in his case. And uh, there are a number of uh, stepping stones as he moves towards that kind of Western position. Um, tell us about Denmark and, 19, I think it's 1966, and suddenly being in the middle of one of the most liberal and prosperous societies and, and the effect that it had on him. Well, in a, in a way, Oleg's conversion began even earlier than that. I mean, as a student, he had been in East Germany when the Berlin Wall was being constructed, and he watched this extraordinary symbolic division of Europe being, being created, miles and miles of barbed wire and concrete. And that had a very dramatic effect on him. But, it, but his first posting as a, as a KGB officer was to Denmark, 
where he was running um, a system called the illegal system, which is where the, the Soviets were brilliant at planting deep cover hidden civilian spies. These were not people who were under diplomatic cover. They were, they were given false identities. And Oleg's job was to run them. But he arrived in, in Denmark and was absolutely stunned by what he discovered. I mean, like many Soviets, he'd been brought up on a diet of pure communist propaganda that told him the West was corrupt, that it was all disgusting and dirty and the capitalists were ruining it. In fact, he arrived in this beautiful capital city, Copenhagen, um, which was clean and he could listen to any music he wanted to. He was a great um, classical music aficionado and he, he couldn't believe, really, that there were certain sorts of music that he could listen to in the West that he wasn't allowed to listen to in Soviet Russia. And that was sort of, in a way, part of his rebellion was a kind of cultural rebellion against what he saw as the philistinism of Soviet life. And... Really, the conversion begins when he's in Denmark, and there's another critical moment when he's there, which is when the Prague Spring, the great reform movement in Czechoslovakia, that, that a lot of young Soviet citizens thought was going to be the wave of the future. They thought that, you know, more it was going to be socialism with a human face. When the Prague Spring was crushed by Soviet military might in 1968, Oleg was absolutely scandalised I and mean, furious. And he did something that was very significant with hindsight. He went to a telephone inside the Soviet embassy that he knew was bugged. He knew it was bugged by the, by the, by the um, Danish intelligence service. And he rang his wife and he delivered a harangue about the crushing of the Prague Spring. And this was a deliberate signal to the West. He was, he was trying to indicate to, to Danish intelligence that actually he wasn't like all the other KGB officers, that he had a conscience. The irony is that, in fact, the signal was completely missed. The Danes just didn't pick it up. Could you uh, read a section, Ben, from The Spy and the Trade? Would you like to borrow my book copy? May I? Thank you. <clears throat> um, just, just something that gives us um, a flavour of the world in which you, you, uh, you take us. OK, well, I'll... I'll, I'll... <clears throat> OK. The 18th of May, 1985. For the KGB's counterintelligence section, Directorate K, this was a routine bugging job. It took less than a minute to spring the locks on the front door of the flat on the eighth floor of 103 Leninsky Prospect. While two men in gloves and overalls set about methodically searching the apartment, two technicians wired the place swiftly and invisibly, implanting eavesdropping devices behind the wallpaper and skirting boards, inserting a live microphone into the telephone mouthpiece and video cameras in the light fittings. By the time they had finished, an hour later, there was barely a corner in the flat where the KGB did not have eyes and ears. A few hours later, a senior Russian intelligence officer landed at Moscow Airport on the Aeroflot flight from London. Colonel Oleg Antonievich Gordievsky of the KGB was at the pinnacle of his career. A prodigy of the Soviet intelligence service, he had diligently risen through the ranks, serving in Scandinavia, Moscow and Britain, with hardly a blemish on his record. And now, at the age of 46, he had been promoted to chief of the KGB station in London and invited to return to Moscow to be formally anointed by the head of the KGB. A stocky, athletic figure, Gordievsky strode confidently through the airport. Inside him, though, a low terror bubbled. For Oleg Gordievsky, KGB veteran, faithful secret servant of the Soviet Union, was a British spy. 
There you go. What a fantastic that, uh, opening. <laughs> this is Ben McIntyre reading from The Spy and the Traitor. Uh, I, want to, I want to read a line that had me... <laughs> you want to read, you want yeah, to read yeah, yeah, I want to read it. This is just one line that I hooted when I read this. Now, basically, some context, this is uh, when uh, Gordievsky is escaping or the plan is being put in, in progress for him to escape, uh, they need to get uh, the Prime Minister's uh, approval. Uh, unfortunately, Mrs Thatcher is at Balmoral at the time with the Queen. So her private secretary is sent up there to Balmoral to uh, get her say-so. And we come to, he is at the gatehouse. The equerry in the gatehouse is on the telephone, conducting a high-level discussion on a matter of considerable royal concern. The Queen wanted to borrow the Queen Mother's videotape recorder in order to watch Dad's army. That was proving very hard to arrange. That's a great line. I love that, straight away. It's, it's that kind of insight as well, that you think, oh right, okay, we, we, we're clearly dealing with someone who's who's going to have every, every aspect. What I loved about this book, um, and I love books that... Um, challenge my thinking on on certain things my knowledge of the kgb is obviously going to be from movies and and spy books and and things like that but my image of them has always been one where they are this all-knowing all-powerful organization that are always two steps ahead of the uh, western spy agencies and yet your book shows them as at this time so we're talking sort of 70s and 80s they are a paranoid drink sodden bunch of time servers who really are no match for well certainly not for MI6. Yes, I mean it's one of the, it was a revelation to me too. I mean the the fact is it was vast the KGB. I mean they had more than a million officers at one point. But like every vast sprawling bureaucracy it was capable of the most fantastic cockups. And and one side didn't know what the other was doing. There were intense rivalries within it. And actually that was one of the things that Oleg really, that was one of the key elements of his intelligence hall, really, was to show to the West that the KGB, rather than being this 10-foot giant of myth, was actually a very flawed organisation that could be that could be attacked successfully. I mean, one of the things that, that, that really Oleg did was to imbue a rather um, anxious Western intelligence establishment with renewed confidence. Um, he sort of, in a way, blew away a lot of the the sort of anxiety hanging over from the Cambridge Five and that 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 those betrayals of the 30s and 40s, and 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 sort of encouraged MI6 and the CIA to sort of go for the KGB. And and one aspect of that is that when when you have an organisation and indeed a structure within the Soviet Union where genuine honest mistakes are punished sometimes disproportionately. The, the net effect of that is that no one admits to making a mistake. So when you have a team that is tailing Gordievsky and they lose him because guess what? He's rather good at losing tails. They don't own up to it. And that is right at the core of his escape. He manages to escape because his team are scurred out of their wits of telling their superiors, we, we lost him for 10 minutes and we don't know where he was for those 10 minutes. That's right. I mean, that it's the time-serving element of, of the kind of Soviet system that they were absolutely, you know, reporting that it had gone wrong up the ladder was a career-ending mistake. You just didn't do it. So so the whole thing was riddled with cover-up. And the truth is that when Oleg was was brought back to Moscow in that final moment when he didn't know whether he was going back to be anointed as head of the KGB in London or whether it was a trap, he swiftly realised it was a trap and he was being followed absolutely everywhere. Not once but four times he threw off surveillance 
to try at first unsuccessfully to get a message to MI6 and then later successfully. But four times his his watchers, as they're called, lost him and they never reported it because he turned up again and they thought, oh, well, it was just a mistake. He must have turned around and caught it. And that's the key to good surveillance evasion is you make you make the, the watchers feel that they've made the mistake and that it's not intentional. So he did it absolutely brilliantly, but nonetheless, and that was also to do with the kind of power struggle within the KGB. The people who'd been put onto his tail to follow him were not the top-grade people because, believe it or not, in his department, his boss didn't want the top-grade people because they were in his department and they would, they would therefore know what was going on. So he chose, a kind of, he chose people who'd normally trailed around Chinese diplomats. When did the Western intelligence agencies, any of them, realise what they had here in their grasp? By about 1974, Oleg was producing information from Denmark on a more or less weekly basis that was of the highest grade. I mean, he was he, he was taking everything that was being sent to the Residentura, the, the, the KGB station in, in Denmark, and it, it arrived on sort of microfilm uh, in a weekly pouch, a diplomatic bag, so it couldn't be searched. He would simply steal the microfilm during his lunch hour, meet his... MI6 contact at different points around the city in Copenhagen. He would hand over the microfilm and Hanslope Park, which is the sort of, um, it's where Q would be if Q actually existed, is the, <laughs> is, it's, it's, it's where the sort of technology is done for, for most spying. Uh, Hanslope Park had created a special machine that meant that the MI6 officer could feed the microfilm into this thing and, and instantly make a copy of it. And they had about 40 minutes to do this transfer because if they'd taken any longer, Oleg would have been spotted. So every week, and that's one of the things about this story, is that Oleg was under constant, the constant knowledge that one mistake, one error over the course of a decade, and he would be arrested, bundled back to Moscow, interrogated, tortured, and then shot. Uh, Coming next... In the second part of this podcast, the importance of a Mars bar, a Safeway bag, oh, and, yes. and cheese and onion crisps. Cheese and onion crisps. <laughs> hey. That's how you escape from the Soviet Union. Uh, more with Ben McIntyre <laughs> and the spy and the traitor after this. Where's the strangest place you've lost your car keys? Inside the refrigerator, the washer or dryer, the trunk of your car, the kitty litter box? Well, good news, because even if you've lost your keys on the moon, you can still unlock your car and get where you're going with available digital key in the 2023 all-new Kia Niro EV. Farther for all. To learn more, visit kia.com slash Niro EV today. Kia, movement that inspires. It's Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. Ben McIntyre's The Spy and the Traitor. Uh, is up for discussion this week. So we've got to the point where the Western Intelligence Agency, MI6, have realised what they've what they've got. Uh, and then he arrives in London. We, we've skipped a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in the early 80s. So it, it, explain what happened when Oleg Gordievsky is now based, I think he's in Kensington, is that right? Yeah, he's in a KGB flat. They all lived in a sort of special set of flats in, in, in London. And Oleg is becomes head of the political department. So he is responsible for recruiting British citizens as Soviet spies. But he also brings with him this extraordinary dowry, if you like. I mean, because he had had the opportunity to go through all the archives of the British section in 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 Moscow before he came. So he was able to tell MI6, and MI6 was therefore able to tell MI5, exactly who was on the KGB books. Okay, and this is where people might have read some of these stories. It's almost a tangential story, but mm. 
uh, people will have read that Michael Foote is is in your book, and Jack Jones, the trade union leader, is in your book. What can what can you reveal? What can you tell us about these names? Well, I mean, Oleg was absolutely stunned by some of these names. I mean, bear in mind that you know he had never been to Britain before, so he didn't really understand who Michael Foote was. But he realised there was this very voluminous file labelled Agent Boot. Um, that was one of the, I mean, spies can never resist giving their spies a code name that is a sort of gentle hoot. And I have a lovely image of sort of, I wish I had a physical image, but I have a mental image of Vladimir Petrov, who was the initial case officer, thinking, oh, well, we will tell a very funny English joke here. We will, Mr. Foote will be Mr. Boot. Um, and so that hey, you do the voices. I was going to say. Go. I mean, come on. <laughs> there you go. Um, but it's you know, but the file is extraordinary. It's, I mean, according to Oleg, it is four hundred pages long, and it describes numerous meetings between Michael Foote and KGB officers over the course of a, nearly two decades, from the end of the forties until nineteen sixty-eight, when Foote had nothing more to do with the KGB. Now, is that as as a result of Czechoslovakia? Yes, I mean he too was, you know, he 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 sort of severed all links. One has to be very careful here. I mean, was Michael Foot a spy? No, he wasn't. He didn't have information of of very high grade to hand over. Did he know that he was meeting KGB officers? Well, if he didn't know that he was meeting KGB officers, he was being extremely naive. He accepted a lot of money. I mean, the equivalent of about £37,000 today. And it was simply put into his pockets as he was leaving lunch. What he did with it, nobody really knows. Did he? I mean, he probably used it to finance Tribune, the, the, the socialist newspaper that he'd edited. Did he keep it for himself? Probably not. He wasn't really that sort of person. So he's a very interesting sort of... I mean, they classified him as an agent under, under Russian uh, nomenclature. We would probably call him an agent of influence, which is a kind of a term of art rather than the term of espionage. And that meant that he was providing information that the Russians, the Soviets regarded as extremely useful. Um, you know, he was providing information on, on the gossip inside the Labour Party, on what was happening in the trade union movements, what Labour policy was on various things. Now, did he do it knowingly? Did he know that he was helping a foreign power? Who knows? I mean, there's a very good Russian term, which is... Um, useful idiot. It was actually invented by Lenin. And it means somebody who who can be manipulated to produce the propaganda result that you want. Uh, I conclude in this book that, that Foote was very useful to the KGB and completely idiotic. And Jack Jones? Well, Jones was much more uh, knowing. I mean, he was Agent Drim. Uh, he really had, over a very long period, knowingly provided information, and, and there's no doubt about that at all, Provided knowingly provided information to the KGB of a very useful sort and continued to do so for many years. In fact, one of Erdig's jobs when he came back to, to London, in, when he first came to London in the early 80s, was to make contact with Jack Jones again and re-establish KGB links with him. Um, so, you know, that he was a very knowing one. One of the ones that, that Oleg was ordered to kind of get in touch with was another man called Ron Brown, who was a, who was a Scottish uh, Labour MP. And Oleg described having numerous meetings with Ron Brown who, um, uh, and trying to recruit him. The problem was that Ron Brown had an incredibly strong Scottish accent, which meant that... What, with him being Scottish? With him being Scottish. Yeah. And, and Oleg couldn't understand a single word he said. Uh, so they had numerous lunches and Oleg would then simply go back to the, to the um, KGB offices and make up what he thought Ron Brown might have said to him. So we have no idea, really, whether Ron Brown was a, was a spy or not, because he's, you know, the truth is hidden behind this very thick Edinburgh accent. The section that you uh, read out uh, for us a few moments ago, which is at the opening of the book, is when he realises that he is under suspicion and it's sort of the, end, the beginning of the endgame and the extraordinary story that you tell of 
again, this is like a movie, Operation Pimlico, and 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 how he how he comes out in the first place. But um, when did he realize he was under suspicion, and how does that story begin to unravel? Well, to go back one stage, quite early on in his case history, Oleg realized that he would be going back to Moscow, and that he wanted some method of getting out if he needed to. And this would so so a plan was framed up actually really quite early on in in the early seventies. Um, a, a brilliant woman called Veronica Price framed up Operation Pimlico, which was a very elaborate plot to get him out if they could. Now, bear in mind, no one had ever escaped from the Soviet Union, let alone a KGB officer under tight surveillance. And so Operation Pimlico sounds completely bonkers. It went like this. If Oleg was seen standing at 7.30 on a Tuesday night on a particular street corner opposite a bread shop in Moscow, holding, believe it or not, a Safeway bag, that would be the signal for exfiltration. That would be the signal that he needed to get out and the plan needed to be activated. And the way that MI6 would acknowledge this was that they would walk past him, they would make brief eye contact, and they would eat a British chocolate bar, either a Mars bar or a Kit Kat. It had to be one of those two. So they kept huge stocks of these things in their pockets and their glove compartments so they could be ready if they ever needed to give the signal. It sounds like it's straight out of kind of spy fiction, which I think it was in some ways. I mean, I think the plan was framed without really any expectation that it would ever have to be used. And so when this signal was flown, that would be the moment that the, the second part of the escape would happen and, and Oleg would have to make his way up to a particular lay-by about 40 miles south of the Finnish border... At the same time, the British MI6 officers would drive in diplomatic cars, which theoretically wouldn't be searched at the border, although that was often challenged by Soviet border guards. They would then put Oleg in the boot, wrap him up, tranquilise him and drive him across the Finnish border. That was Operation Pimlico. But as I say, they never really... I think they hoped it was never going to have to be used. And Oleg himself regarded it as a kind of... as a Mickey Mouse plan. He, he didn't think it was ever going to work. But bear in mind that this corner of this particular street had to be monitored by MI6 all, all the time. I mean, whether or not Oleg was in Moscow or not, because they couldn't change the pattern of their behaviour because they too were under KGB surveillance. And if they only checked the signal site when Oleg was in town, that was a clear pattern of behaviour. So for seven years, every Tuesday evening, somebody from MI6, rain, snow, wind, didn't matter, had to be down on that corner at the bread shop so they, apart from anything else, they gathered a huge stock of very stale bread. Yes. And the cheese and onion crisps, how do, how, <laughs> how, how do they help him escape? Well, this is the other bizarre part of the story. So, so to, to, to cut to the chase, they, they, they managed brilliantly to throw off the KGB surveillance that was following them, these two MI6 cars. They managed to reach the lay-by. They had about 80 seconds to extract Oleg from the undergrowth, wrap him in a special heat-reflective blanket that would stop the infrared cameras at the border from picking him up, give him some tranquilizer pills, throw him back in the boot with some water, slam the boot shut. That took 80 seconds. And as you were mentioning earlier, the thing about, you know, Soviets, you know, being unwilling to report bad news. Well, of course, the KGB surveillance had passed them while they were hidden in the lay-by. And as they drove up the road, they saw the, the, the surveillance cars ahead of them. And that was a critical moment. Were the KGB going to report that they'd lost the people they were following for 80 seconds? They didn't. Had they done so, the whole of history would have been different. But as they were going through the, the checkpoint, they went through. there were three checkpoints at the Finnish border. They got through the first one okay. At the second one, they were parked at the barrier 
when the Soviet sniffer dogs began to go round the boot of the car and, and evidently they had, they had detected that there was something in there. So one of the wives of the MI6 officers brilliantly took out a packet of cheese and onion crisps, which, as everybody knows, are extremely pungent things, and began to feed them to the dogs to try and put them off the scent, which kind of worked for a little bit, but the dogs hadn't quite given up. And then the other... Um, the other wife of the other MI6 oh, yes. officer yeah. <laughs> realised that something was going to have to be done. And in a, a brilliant, impromptu move, she took her little baby out of the back seat of the car, who, and the baby had obligingly just filled her nappy. She changed her on the boot of the car and dropped the dirty nappy on one of the dogs, or very near one of the dogs, which immediately went, oh, God, you know. And the smell of the dirty nappy disguised what was in the boot, and the dog's backed away and disappeared. So um, that's sort of, if you like, the, the dirty nappy that changed the course of the Cold War. Absolutely. And uh, that whole chapter reads absolutely like a thriller. And there are so many elements there that you think, you could not make this up. Cheese and onion crisps, filled babies, nappies, Safeway bags and, and chocolate bars. Was there a point when you were researching this where you were thinking, oh my goodness, this is gold? Because I, I'm not just the escape. The, there are other aspects of this story, like the Queen Mother and the video recorder, where you go, oh my, how lucky have I been? Well, I felt incredibly lucky. I also at moments thought, this can't be true. Mm. This this must be made up. This reads like fiction. But one of the lucky things I had with the book was that I was able to interview all the MI6 officers who were involved in the case, every single one. I don't think I missed a single one. And their stories are absolutely identical. That you know, this is—it's not just—it's not part of MI6 myth. This, this is this is remembered history. So yes, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, if it reads very dramatically, it is nonetheless a very dramatic game. This, I mean, and it does come down to sort of human error, individual character. Only in spy fiction does spying work perfectly. It doesn't work that way. It, it almost always goes wrong. And there are moments in this when it goes dramatically wrong. And it's almost, in the end, down to sort of human ingenuity, as you say, a packet of crisps and a dirty nappy. And Oleg now, you've met him, you've, you've obviously interviewed him, and he's living in a sort of nondescript suburban, suburban house. I'm, I'm struck by one thing you do say about him, is that because his family did come back over with him after he'd escaped, but he was then estranged from them, and you, he strikes you as a very lonely man now. Well, one of the terrible decisions that, that he had to make in Moscow before activating his escape was that he had to decide whether he would take his wife and two very young daughters with him. And that's kind of the emotional crux of the story because it was a really long night of the soul. MI6 was ready to take them all four of them out. I mean, it had provision to do so. Oleg had to decide whether it would work. And, and he still talks about this in a very sort of poignant way he didn't know really whether... He, I mean, his wife had absolutely no idea that he was a double agent. She herself was the daughter of two KGB officers. She was very, very KGB. She was very yeah. KGB. And I think part of him, and he says this, you know, didn't know whether he could fully trust her. He probably could have done. But anyway, so he made the run, and it took another six years before his family were, were able to come out. And as you say, that the marriage was completely destroyed, really, by that point anyway. So Oleg lives in a safe house um, where he's been now for nearly 30 years. Um, it is a sort of captivity. I mean, he, he, he is, lives under a different name. His neighbours have no idea who he is. Um, you know, he, he can come and go, but not alone, um, particularly after what happened in Salisbury recently. He is under very, very tight uh, security these days. So there is a price. I mean, he, Oleg paid a huge price for what he did and he's 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 a remarkable man in in lots and lots of ways and but he is also a very lonely man 
but he's also, I think, the bravest person I've ever met. And as as you hint, Ben, it's impossible to read this without the Shripal story echoing all the way through it. Does he fear for his life? No, I, you know, I don't think he does because I think he is he is he's in his eightieth year now. He's an extraordinarily brave man. He's very insouciant about that sort of thing. He's been under a death threat ever since he came to Britain. He was tried in absentia and sentenced to death. Uh, that execution order is still in force. He is, I guess, you know, the most prominent um, defector from the KGB there's ever been. So he he knows how to live with this. It's this is not a new experience for him, and you know, I think he thinks that that is part of the game. Does he still have something? You, we haven't had time to go into any detail about how his advice to Thatcher and Reagan was very important in the the kind of the closing stages of the Cold War. Does he have anything still to offer, do you think, about the ongoing debate about Russia and Russia's uh, attempts to influence the West? Yes. I mean, uh, Oleg is, is, is a brilliant and always was a very, very effective intelligence officer. And his, his one of his points is that actually the methods being used by modern Russia are not so far removed from what, the, what he himself was taught at the KGB spy school uh, in the 60s. You know, all this... All the techniques of fake news and disinformation and, and, and planting, you know, informants and trying to recruit people on the other side, that, that's going on as, as, as it always has. I mean, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB officer. And as Putin himself says, you never really leave the KGB. So, no, there are direct modern parallels. Does he fear Putin? No. I mean, I think, no, I don't think he does. I don't think, I, I think Putin would, would be very foolish to attempt to do anything uh, to Oleg Gordievsky. He would be very hard to get to. And will you continue this friendship, do you think? Will you keep on dropping in and being a mate? Yes, uh, dropping in is a, is, a, is a nice way to describe something that is actually a great deal more complicated than just dropping <laughs> yes. in. You don't really turn up at Oleg's front door and knock on it. Um, yes, I've become very close to Oleg over the years. I mean, I think I totted them up the other day. I think I've got something like 115 hours of recorded interviews. Um, and I was seeing him about once a month um, at one point. And he, he's extraordinary, Oleg, because even now, I mean, he's, he is elderly now, but his powers of recall are quite extraordinary. I mean, he could tell you exactly what it smelt like in a particular cafe in 1963. And that, for a non-fiction writer, is absolute gold dust. And having a photographic memory, if you're a spy, that's that pretty useful. Pretty yeah. damn... Well, of course, you can train yourself up for that. That was one of the things they taught at School 101, the Red Banner Institute outside Moscow. This is And now this is our ruthless interrogation of you, Ben. Yes. We're just going to conclude with uh, Q&A. You can um, answer as many of these as you like. And I don't think you've taken an amphetamine drug to no. avoid our truth. <laughs> More of that in The Spy and the Traitor. Um, the last book that you really, really enjoyed... Well, I loved Christopher Andrews' kind of magisterial kind of um, tour of of spying right from the beginning right to the end. It's a, it's it's just come out, and it's I mean you'd have to be as interested in this stuff as I am, but it's comprehensive. Brilliant. Is there a book that you remember being read to you as a child? Yeah, my father used to read as P.G. Woodhouse as as children, largely because he would get he would see the joke coming and get hysterical long before you actually reached the punchline, which was always much funnier than anything I thought in P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, the one that got away. Is there a book? It should have been massive that wasn't, and you can't mention any of yours. God damn. Um, Everyone wants to do their own book. Good yeah. grief. I didn't say that in the list. Um, <laughs> uh, what do I think should... Well, there are so many that I think somehow miss the target. It's a very hard question to answer that because it, I'm quite often baffled by publishing that things don't don't lift off in the way that they should. But um, what have I read recently that I thought deserved... I read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. I know that was a huge book at the time, but I think it should be on absolutely every syllabus it's everywhere. Yeah. It's a wonderful book. Um, whose books do you own the most of on your bookshelves? 
Well, there are some authors that I own all their books, but you know, I suppose you know everything by John Le Carre. I, I, yeah. I absolutely swallow whole. I, I love sets of books. Actually, I mean, I you know I have all of Henry James. I have all of um, you know Graham Greene. I have so, so I'm a great set collector, really. That's the least surprising answer of all time. Graham Greene <laughs> and Matt John Le Carre. Yes. I know. Sorry, it's a bit obvious. No, 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 no. Um, your reading habits, Ben. Where and when do you read the most? I read in bed, actually. I mean, I, I, there's no greater pleasure than waking up first thing and storming into a book or, or drifting off with one in your hand. So I do that. I've also got a very weird kind of Victorian machine that allows one to read in the bath, which I use quite a lot. It's a sort of wooden contraption. Really? A Victorian machine? Mm, but it's not really a machine. It's like, it looks like a sort of rather elaborate musical stand, but it swings out over the bath. It's rather beautiful. Lovely. Uh, is there a method to your bookshelves? Do you sort of sort them by genre, by author, by alphabetically or anything? I used to. I used to arrange them even by colour. That was how sort of spotty oh, I was. But, yes. but actually I've discovered that my books are now breeding and there's no point. They, they're, they're books I've never seen before are now turning up. Clearly at night Martin Amos snuggles over to Jane Austen and they have a baby. So I've now given up trying to organise them at all. They're just sprawling everywhere. The first book you bought with your own money? I think that was probably The Great Gatsby, actually. I think that was the first one that I shelled out for. Is there a book that you've used to try to impress someone, a potential partner, perhaps? Well, I used to wander around at university with a sort of copy of Dostoevsky or oh, anything yes. tucked on. I don't think I ever read a single word, but I, you know, I don't think I impressed anybody. Uh, is there a book you like to step inside of where the world that's been created has been wonderful that you'd love to be a part of that? Again, I think probably P.G. Woodhouse. I know it's a completely fake world, but actually it is so joyful and so full of character. I think if one could step into the world of, of Bertie Wooster, I think that would be great fun. And finally, is there a book that you wish you'd written, either for financial reasons or you know, artistic jealousy, respect, that kind of thing? I guess I just wish I'd, I had written more books. I mean, that's not for financial reasons or... But I just, you know, I, I didn't... I, I began writing books in my late 20s and I, I you know only recently have I kind of got into the rhythm of it I wish I'd just written more what are you going to write next Ben I can't tell you that it's oh a secret. come on partly because I don't know yes you do I'm sure you've got a couple <laughs> you've got a couple of plans yeah I have yeah I've got a couple of ideas but um yeah no it's uh, uh, yeah a couple of things are boiling he hasn't told us anything no he hasn't no. You well, need the truth drug. It's almost as they've been talking <laughs> to spies. Uh, ben McIntyre's latest is The Spy and the Traitor. Ben, thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thank you. So thanks to Ben... <coughs> oh, please. Oh, dear, sorry. Thanks to Ben McIntyre for being our guest on this Books of the Year podcast. It's Graham Norton next. It's great. I've just finished Graham Norton's book, uh, which is great. Uh, I remember we did his first... Uh, fiction book on the book club on Radio 2 a couple of years ago, I'm going to say, and that was excellent as well. This one's just as good. Graham Norton's book is called A Keeper. You can hear him on the next edition of Simon Mayer's Books of the Year, and we'll see you then. Get well soon, Matt. Yes, here's hoping. Where's the strangest place you've lost your car keys? Inside the refrigerator? The washer or dryer? The trunk of your car? The kitty litter box? Well, good news, because even if you've lost your keys on the moon, you can still unlock your car and get where you're going with available digital key in the 2023 all-new Kia Nero EV. Farther for all. To learn more, visit kia.com slash Nero EV today. Kia, movement that inspires. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revelhorwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.